You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. A ship over downtown Los Angeles. The city wakes up and they're in a panic. I mean, no one's going to work. There's an alien spaceship over downtown. And there's a scene where the Captain Hiller, who's played by Will Smith, is getting ready to go to work, and his girlfriend is upset with him for, for getting ready to go to work. And he's like, what's your problem? But she's like, what do you mean? That's why. And she opens the curtains, uh, these helicopters flying around this alien spaceship. Everyone's just utter chaos. And it's this, like, utterly, utterly devastating moment, like, of just pure panic and chaos and confusion. Well, in our society, folks hear that Jesus has said that the kingdom of God has come. But they look out their window and no one saw a consummated kingdom of God where justice reigns, where evil is done away with, when there's no fear of death. The person who looked out their window this morning into the world saw brokenness. They saw the shattering effects of sin in the fall in a place where justice sometimes reigns, but it's not enough. And they might think, the kingdom of God has come, huh? What kind of kingdom is this? That person has been misinformed because if they want to see a glimpse of the kingdom of God, They should peek into Christ's church where his kingdom has come. And if they peek into the church, what might they see? What would they see about this kingdom of Christ that has come as they look into the church? What would they find? In today's text, we gain insight into the experience of dwelling in the kingdom of Christ, how it unveils our origin in the kingdom of Christ, our purpose here, and the challenges we face as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so I hope to get your mind just uh, visualizing and imagining the kingdom and our life within it. And so as we go through our text today, you might consider applications to your own life as you think about kingdom living as being a citizen of not this earthly kingdom only, but a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so without any more comments, we will read today's text starting at the latter half of verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way through verse 30. Hear the word of God this morning. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful, fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to God for his word this morning. As a quick review, in the opening of this letter, we saw the heart of God, how seeing the heart of God toward us and his work in us is what manifests the reality that living is Christ, that his heart toward us in his grace and his peace, and that he began our salvation, that he's going to finish our salvation. We saw the heart of God and the affection of Christ for us as Paul talks how he yearns for the saints with the affections of Christ. And then finally, we looked at the type of prayers that the Father loves to answer, mainly that rooted in Christ, we would love one another well and that we would suffer well. And then we continued on last week to look at how the gospel is actually advancing through trial and how the joy of the gospel is situated in the fact that we trust a God who is sovereign over each and every circumstance of our life. And the power of Jesus Christ transcends every circumstance we are in. With all of that said, we end chapter 1 with understanding how living is Christ. So as Paul is trying to gain the Philippian uh, saints, he's trying to gain their attention back to the power and the joy of the gospel. We see this thing through the whole beginning of this first chapter. That the gospel gives us fellowship with God, but fellowship with one another. And that is what characterizes the kingdom of Christ here on this earth. You see, every human being wrestles with two things. Identity, who am I? What am I? And then the problem of evil. Evil from within us but evil that happens from outside uh, on us. And living is Christ, as we heard Paul say, because we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Living is Christ only because we are citizens now, not of this kingdom only, but a heavenly kingdom. And so what we see today is that living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom is only possible, number one, through Christ who is our salvation, and who has made us citizens of his kingdom. It's only possible, number two, through Christ, who is the answer to our problem of purpose in this life. And then number three, it's possible, living as citizens, the kingdom of heaven is possible, number three, through Christ, who is the reason that we do not have to be distracted by the fear of evil in this life. 
So that's what we're going to look at today, those three points, and then conclude our sermon. And so looking with me at this first section, the latter half of verse 18 through verse 20, Paul really focuses on how his imprisonment is going to turn out for his deliverance through the help of the Spirit of Christ and the prayers of the saints. And so because of that, it is his his expectation and his hope that, connecting verse 20, that Christ is going to be magnified whether he lives or whether he dies. Now, this deliverance would make no sense if he was talking about purely bodily comfort, just purely bodily freedom. Because he would then be saying, my imprisonment is going to work out for my non-imprisonment. That, that's clearly not what he's saying. What he's saying is that I will have joy, the end of verse 18, I'm going to have joy because all things are working out for my salvation. Think of Romans 8, 28. This will work out for my deliverance. End of verse 20, whether I live or whether I die, I'm his. That's why I will rejoice Connecting that to his thesis in verse 12, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So whether I live or whether I die, salvation is mine. This will work out for good, for God's glory, for my good. So he's not speaking of some safety of the body, but a deliverance that he expects to happen irrespective of what happens to his body, this side of glory. And this word, work out for my deliverance, is actually alluding to Job 13, when Job says, though he slays me, I will hope in him. Though he slays me, I will hope in him. The godless will not affect my standing before God because he's my redeemer. This will turn out for my salvation is what we read Job saying to the Lord amidst the evil that has happened to him because God is my redeemer. Nothing will impact my standing before God. The Lord. So this now helps us understand verse 20, why it's his eager expectation and hope that he's not going to be ashamed, but that Christ will actually be made big. Christ would be honored. The word is magnified, made large. And all of that is connected to the joy of salvation. To the God, verse 6 in chapter 1, who began a good work and who will finish that good work. So living as citizens of Christ's kingdom begins with the reality, number one, that Christ is our assurance of salvation. Living as citizens of the kingdom of Christ begins with the reality that Christ is our assurance of salvation. Because the whole world is going to be held accountable before God. When Christ returns. And in the end, God gives out grades, but there's only two of them zero and a hundred. He doesn't grave on a curve and he doesn't listen to any of the excuses. And those who've perfectly lived the law in perfect thought, word, and deed, they'll get a hundred, counted righteous. But if you're like me, you're doomed utterly doomed because I know that you're like me not having kept the law perfectly in thought word and deed you too are doomed in and of yourself 
standing before God, but under no obligation. Instead of just erasing all of creation and what God had made, he put a plan in motion in which he freely, graciously, and at a tremendous cost to himself, satisfied his justice in our place. Counting us with the perfect righteousness of Christ and crushing him in our stead. And to our hopeless situation, saints, God asks, God acts to rescue us anyway. See, the language of Christianity is the language of substitution. It's not primarily the language of morals. God is not presented as a mother saying, make sure you eat all your vegetables now. Instead, Christianity is about a one-sided rescue that we didn't want and we certainly didn't deserve, and he did it anyway. If God died for us in Christ, God has every right having satisfied his justice by taking it all in our stead to give, to give us whatever he wants to give us. And in other words, God has the right to save us for free. He's the one who allowed himself in Christ to be crucified for our sins. And he has the right to give us eternal life. He died in our place. He has a right to reckon us a righteousness that really isn't ours. And he does. And he does, saints. Those words of truth about the Lord Jesus were written by a man, Rod Rosenblatt. Rod Rosenblatt is a pastor and theologian in the Lutheran church and was very influential even in my own life of understanding grace, understanding Christ outside of myself. Rod Rosenblatt died February 2nd, two days ago. Because he trusted this Christ, when he saw Jesus, Jesus was not ashamed of him. We will not be ashamed of the Lord in this life because he is not ashamed of us now and he will not be ashamed of us in glory. This is why death is not a threat. Death is not a threat. Death death is not a threat to his brother Rod Rosenblatt. It's not a threat to Paul as we read. Living for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is not a threat for you. Paul says, what Christ means to me is life. Christ means life, but death means even more life because of what Christ has done for us, because Christ is resurrected, because Christ is beside the Father, and he is not ashamed of us. He is our salvation right now. As you sit in that pew, he is your salvation. He will be the reason that you make it to the end and look him in the face with your very own eyes in the resurrection. As we move into this next section, it's important. I'm focusing on death because there's this logical imbalance and this tension that needs to be kept. Paul says, my entire life finds meaning in Christ. But dying means being with Christ. And so in that way, dying here is viewed as an advantage. 
Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that. That dying is gain. The church has always uh, denied soul sleep. That when we die, our consciousness just kind of goes to sleep until the resurrection. Paul clearly says that die is gain because I will be with Christ. So when we shut our eyes in this life, a final breath, and the stillness of death happens, we are with the Lord, the scripture tells us. So in that way, dying is viewed as an advantage in Christ. I mean, Paul here, he's basically saying to these saints, listen, alive, I'm Christ's messenger. I'm his mouthpiece. I'm his worker. But in the stillness of death, I become Christ's cherished possession. Jesus says we are his prize after death. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit looks upon us this morning to say that you are my joy. So Paul says, basically it's life versus even more life. Some days I can think of nothing better but to just be with Christ and to leave this world. But because of what you are going through, I'm sure that my place is here navigating struggles with you. I'm sure in this apostolic era, Paul had some sort of notion that he was going to stay around a little while longer. But he knew death was close. And so in this way that we see Paul say, I, 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 I almost hope that death is sooner so I can be with my Lord. I've worked hard, I've labored hard. But as I see the struggles you're going through, I'm convinced that I'm going to stay around a little while longer to struggle with you for your good. The selflessness of Paul that we see. All because death is not a threat. All because death is not a threat. Donald Barnhouse was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a very famous uh, Presbyterian church that many faithful ministers passed through that were, that were quite, their ministries were quite large in America. Well, he lost his wife when his daughter was just a child. And he was trying to help himself and his daughter process the loss of his wife and her mother. And they were driving down the highway at one time and this huge moving van passed by them. And as it passed, the shadow of the truck covered their car swept over their car, and the minister had a thought. He said something like this to his daughter. Would you rather be run over by a truck or by a shadow? His daughter replied, the shadow, of course, that can't hurt us at all. Dr. Barnhouse replied, right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive, more alive than we are, because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus, and because, saints, we believe in him, the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is but an entrance into glory. So to live 
is Christ. It's real life in Christ. To die is more life with Christ. And so as we gain insight into this experience of dwelling in the kingdom of Christ, we see that our beginning is Jesus. Our end is Jesus. We got into this kingdom by the glorious grace of God who brought us from a kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. We got in through Jesus, we're kept by Jesus, and we're going to be finally saved by the Jesus who's not ashamed of us now, won't be ashamed to call us his when we die. He's our entire salvation. But now we move on to see that he's also the answer to our purpose in this life. We find answer to our purpose in this life in the Lord Jesus. So number two, as we continue on, to verses 25 and following, I want you to see that in the kingdom of Christ, our purpose is to glory in Christ. In the kingdom of Christ, our purpose is to glory in Christ. So Paul basically says that because he's convinced that he's going to labor with them a little while. For what? For their progress and joy in the faith. So because of their fellowship, they're laboring together. There will be progress and joy in the faith so that they will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of what God is going to do through Paul's ministry. But all of this section, the progress and joy in the faith would lead us to more and more glory in Christ Jesus. So if glory in Christ Jesus is our purpose in life, how does that happen even in these verses? Christian fellowship. Paul says, when I come to you, we're going to progress one another and we are going to fellowship together in the joy of our salvation. And that will be the cause of glorying in Christ Jesus. So that your boasting in Christ may abound through my ministry when I come to you, Paul says. So Christian fellowship is the grounds of joy and progress in the faith, leading us to boast all the more in Christ Jesus. So we're seeing now that our purpose in life, as we see Paul deny this desire to go be with Christ for the purpose of building up the church, others focused, we're seeing that our life is not about us. It's actually about one another. Maybe this is why he prays in verses 9 through 11 that they would grow and abound more and more in love with knowledge and discernment. In that verse 9 in chapter 1, I mean verse 11 filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So God actually gets glory when we glory in Jesus by fellowshipping together. If I can put it simply. So the Christian life is not about our personal fulfilling, but maybe a working definition of living is Christ, is that our life, our life makes Christ big and ourselves small through loving one another. That verse 20, that Christ would be magnified. In verse 26, that Jesus would be all the more our boast because he is our salvation. So what is the chief end of man but to glorify God and enjoy him forever? But let me help us think a little more deeply about why that's true. Have you ever thought about 
the chief end of Christ. What is the chief end of Jesus Christ? Well, the chief end of Christ, John 8, 54 says, is to be glorified by the Father. And in turn, the Father is glorified in Jesus. And what is the delight and the joy of the Father and the Son? Jesus says, and this is the will of the Father who sent me, that I would lose nothing that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in me should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. He must increase, and we must decrease. But it all depends on the work of Christ for us. This is why Paul connects his expectation and his hope that Christ would be magnified. Because his mission is to make that happen in our life. Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, verses 14 and 15 says that the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that he has died for all, so all have died. And if he died for all, then those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ is magnified when we look to him for eternal life, for our hope that we're good with God now, and for our hope that we will make it later. But he's also magnified as we decrease, and he increases in the way that we love one another. Because death is not a threat, saints. You don't have to live your best life now as your flesh desires it. Your best life is yet to come. You can pour yours out here because the love of Christ controls you. He's actually maybe redefining what a best life now is. Because we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we now live, we live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved us and gave himself for us. So we are controlled by the love of Christ. But how? Think about last week because the power is in Christ. When he is proclaimed week after week, after week, after week, from these pulpits, from this pulpit. But also as we live together, side by side, serving one another, decreasing so that Christ might be magnified in the way that we love one another. So gaining understanding and an experience of what dwelling in the kingdom of Christ is like. We've seen that our beginning and our end is in Christ. He's our entire salvation. We've seen the substance of our greater purpose in this life. He is the substance of our greater purpose. But he's also the reason that we don't need to live in fear of our adversaries. As we move on in our text, looking at verses 27 to 30, 
we see, number three, that in Christ's kingdom, this one's a little longer, in Christ's kingdom, fear gives way to hope, unity, and vigilance. Fear gives way to hope, unity, and vigilance. Acknowledging an adversary that seeks to divide us and hinder us from being effective in all areas of our life. In the kingdom of Christ, fear gives way to hope, to unity, and to vigilance. Because we acknowledge an adversary that seeks to divide us, to hinder our effectiveness in all aspects of life. You'll see in verses 27 to 30, the reason I'm even using this language of living as kingdoms living as citizens of Christ's kingdom is because that's what he means in verse 27. Let your life be worthy. Live as citizens of his kingdom. Behave as if you're his, as if you're a kingdom that you're a part of a kingdom that will never end. And where Jesus wins and he sits on a throne and he loves you. Live that way is what he's asking here. But what would that look like? Well, whether I come to you or not, whether I'm there or absent, here's what I'm asking. Here's what that looks like. I want to hear that you are standing firm. Now look at the last sort of adjective there, side by side. These go together. What does it look like for us to stand firm on Christ Jesus? It looks like standing side by side. In agreement, which is why he says of one mind in one spirit. So our purpose and glory in Christ Jesus, it's also defined by how we side by side stand firm and defend the gospel. Because it is the power. So standing firm in one spirit with one mind, living side by side. This is living This is the life that Christ bought for us. That we aren't cast headlong into hell because we've lived the life we wanted to live, denying God altogether. But we also aren't saved in order to live this individualistic, higher life, sort of emotional, I'm floating along, nothing can hurt me, it's me and Jesus. Living as Christ means you are saved to his body where you glory in Christ by loving one another, mainly by standing firm side by side on Jesus, on the work and person of Christ. It is really hard to let a personal conflict just absolutely destroy a, destroy a relationship when this is the kingdom that we're a part of, when this is the Christ that we're thinking about, when this is how we're aiming to live. Living is Christ, so I decrease. And Christ increases by how we are unified on him, side by side, fighting. This is side by side war language. Why? Because we have adversaries against us. We have a kingdom of darkness. And you know what his plan is? The entire kingdom of darkness is trying to disunify us. And he does this two ways. The kingdom of darkness is all about deception and it's all about distortions of the truth. 
This is why Paul is even writing because there's, there's opponents that are coming in, teaching false things about Christ. The Judaizers are, are t- talking about having confidence in the flesh. And the, the, the physical conflicts that the Philippian church is having is causing all kinds of divisions and rivalries that we'll see in chapter four whenever we get there. And this is the work of Satan. That we would, that the truth would be distorted, that we would come in here looking for the next thing to do. Forgetting that the power is Christ. If we ever forget that the power is Christ Jesus, Satan has got a foothold. When we forget that Christ is our everything, we'll start to bicker. Everything else will start to be real important to us. We will be most important to us. But as it is, the power of Christ decreases us. That we might lock arms and in one mind and in one spirit agree primarily on the Lord Jesus, but not letting any other conflict get in our way of that. And the way that we're unified, the way that we're unified, Paul says, is a sign of their destruction. Verse 28. It's a sign of their destruction. Our unity mainly in the gospel, that we won't let any personal conflict ruin. Our unity in the gospel is a sign of the evil one's destruction. Why? Because the end of the gospel is that Jesus comes back and his justice reigns. It will destroy and judge all evil and it will comfort the saints. Everything will be made right. Everything will one day be made right. And so we're not going to let... discussions about the truth or personal conflict keep us from being side by side, one mind and one spirit, knowing that the power is in Christ crucified. But he also says that it's also for our salvation. It's a sign of their destruction and your salvation. The fact that we're even in this war is a sign that we're the Lord's. We are his We're in a war because we're marked by Jesus himself and they hated him, they hate us. The entire kingdom of darkness is against us. Which is why Paul is so thankful for this church, but the language is just stand firm, unified, one mind, one spirit. But this, saints, as it works out, as it works out in our life, it is uncomfortable. It is cheesy, it is weird, it is hard. This sounds good when you hear it the way I described it. We're in a war, let's do this. But then we get offended by somebody and we let it fester. We let it fester and resentment starts to build. Now we're assuming poor things in the other person's motive week after week after week. This is what we do. This ain't just for the weak people in the room. This is for all of us. And this is the way the devil gets a foothold in our lives and destroys a church. And the truth doesn't matter anymore. My personal hurt does. It's not that your personal hurt doesn't matter at all. Just that because of the Lord Jesus, we deal with that stuff together. We are side by side in a war against the kingdom of darkness. And Christ is our power. And because he is never ashamed of us, we can face each other eye to eye and, and conversate. Just say, I'm hurt. And I'm, I'm honestly upset that I'm hurt. 
And I know it's silly and it doesn't make sense to you, but thank you for listening. Can you just hear me out? It is better to do that, to not even know how to communicate about a personal rivalry or disagreement than to let it fester. And this sounds silly, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on what I think God is saying is important. The Lord Jesus and what gets in between what's important and us, but our personal rivalries and dissensions and, and on and on and on the list goes. But when we preach Christ week over week, it crushes that. It crushes that. And it is the power that controls us. So I guess I just got through basically saying that living this way is cheesy, it's hard, and it is less spiritual than it sounds. It feels less spiritual than it sounds coming from this pulpit, but it is the good work that God does in us when we seek with everything in our power to live in unity on the gospel of Jesus Christ side by side. Maybe illustrate this. One author correctly writes that following Christ is not a golden ticket to a white picket fence American dream. It's an invitation to die, to pick up a cross. C.S. Lewis writes similarly, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you happy or feel really comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. That's what C.S. Lewis says. What they're both getting at is that it's real easy in this life to find basic happiness and comfort. But living the Christian life, being part of a church community, requires making sacrifices that may feel uncomfortable, but it is how the Lord is making us more like himself. It's hard enough to accept the inevitability of suffering. And sometimes we think that we're doing good just to resign ourselves to the fact that grief can't be avoided. Now the challenge is to understand, as Paul says, that these afflictions are not merely inevitable, but they're actually a manifestation of God's gracious dealings with you. As he says in verse 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not just to believe, but to suffer. And notice that the suffering is the enemies that are seeking to keep us from being unified. It's this paradoxical array of events that our suffering is evidence of God's design to save because we're in a war where Jesus wins in the end. But until then, until the resurrection and the day of the Lord, we say that because we're called according to his purpose, to his love and to his grace. All things are working out for his glory and our good, each and every circumstance. So important as we are concluding our time, Christian sanctification and maturity are not an individualistic exercise. The struggles each of us faces are to be faced in the believing community. They're to be faced in the church. This is how, this is a sign of the evil one's destruction when we live that way, is what Paul just said. Their unity, don't be frightened by anything by your opponents, but because you are standing firm side by side, you don't need to be frightened, and that's a clear sign of their destruction, Paul says. It is hard to get away from what he's saying. We need each other, whether we like it or not. 
We need each other. And Satan would like to convince us that we don't like it and don't need it. Deal with it on your own. Put on the mask. Put on the avatar. Don't let anybody in. But the Lord doesn't disciple our masks. He disciples us. And we live together openly, together. Firm on the gospel of Christ Jesus. We're in this greater conflict between God and the prince of darkness. The entire kingdom of darkness. Our unity is a reminder that they will be destroyed. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? This divine necessity of suffering, as you think about it, remember Romans 5, 3 and 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So as Christian sanctification and maturity is not a solitary, individual pursuit. When you read and you hear and you think about living is Christ. We should think about the kingdom of which we are now citizens. Behave as citizens. But what is that kingdom like? We thought about it today. That when circumstances in life cause you to question your salvation, remember Jesus. He is the power. He is your salvation. The author and the finisher of your faith. He didn't save you from your bad ways to bring you to good ways. He saved you from trusting in your good ways to trusting in Jesus, who is your everything, now and forever. And remember also, when you think about living as Christ and you think about his kingdom, that when you fear that you've lost purpose, remember Christ's purpose and not losing a single one of us, but raising us up on the last day. And that's how the Father gets glory. And the Lord Jesus never forgets, and he never fails. And we're a people of joy because God is no longer mad at us. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Abba, Father, we cry because his love was poured out upon us. And together we stride uncomfortably in this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We often fall, but we're getting each other back up because Christ came to save, not to condemn. And finally, as you think about the kingdom and living as Christ, remember that Jesus can't wait to judge evil. He can't wait to put an end to this and be with us forever. And so we have hope. We have hope that we also will not be ashamed, but Christ will be magnified in us. Because Christ has overcome the world. God says, my dear children, your sins are forgiven. I remember them no more. Live. Go and live. We described today what living is like in the kingdom of Christ. And so the challenges we encounter must be confronted within the context of Christ's kingdom here on earth. The local church. Christ is proclaimed and we stand firm side by side. Until glory. Let's pray.